This past week, I finally read some good news concerning the lockout. I'd like to see it remain as it is now. But that isn't about to happen. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! On Saturday, the players and owners met for another session of negotiations. The session lasted, from what I read, less than an hour. The owners made a counter-proposal to the players that the players were not at all impressed with. It appears that little, if any, progress was made in that meeting on Saturday. Pitchers and catchers are scheduled to report to spring training this week, and next week, 12 days from now, the first spring training games are scheduled to be played. It appears there is no way that's going to happen. And now the question, well, really remains, but builds in its urgency, what about March 31st? What about the regular season? And ultimately, the answer remains what it has been, which is basically, don't know. We're going to have to wait and see what happens. So no good news from that standpoint. But there was good news that came out last week that is tied to the lockout. At least it's good news to my ears. It's good news to my way of thinking. I want to get to that in a moment and actually spend the entire episode discussing it. But before I do that, I need to backtrack. Backtrack to episode 95, which dropped on January the 10th. I assumed something that I want to clarify, but more importantly, I I made a significant oversight in that episode. In that episode, I answered, I believe it was five questions that have been asked of me by those of you who listen to this podcast. One of the questions was, who were the people that had the biggest impact on you getting to the major leagues? The assumption I made that I I thought about it afterwards and said, you know what, I better make sure I clarify, is I didn't say something that I assumed everybody would understand. That is, every single teammate of mine, from T-ball all the way up, even friends that might not have played baseball, that we played baseball out in my backyard, as well as all of those on the opposing teams were instrumental in me getting to the major leagues. Without them, I do not get there. Again, that's an assumption, but I don't want anybody to think that, or doesn't he think that they had anything to do with it? But really what I want to address is the significant oversight. Because as I listed the people, I think I covered the basic people, again, from the time I was a child until I did get to the big leagues that helped me get there, except one person. And one person that was so instrumental that I honestly, looking back on it now, I believe that without him, I probably do not get to the big leagues. Despite all of the other people that had such an impact, without this man, I probably don't get there. And I think the reason it it was an oversight is I was thinking so much about people that were coaches, hit me ground balls, caught bullpens, whatever it might be, that I failed to mention this man. And it's a huge failure on my part. And the man is Mackie Shillstone. 
Mackie Shillstone. I don't, I don't know if back in the 1980s, guru was thrown around like it is today. But if it was, Mackie Shillstone would be undoubtedly a guru in the field of strength, conditioning, performance, preparation, nutrition. And I had heard of Mackie primarily because of his work back in the 80s with Ozzie Smith and Vince Coleman, both at that time players with the St. Louis Cardinals. And I'd heard about how he helped them get stronger and gain weight. And so I wanted to, to, to see Mackie. I wanted to, to learn from Mackie. And I had a friend who got me in contact with Mackie. And late in 1988, I think it was in November, I flew down from Michigan, from Jenison, where I was living at the time, to New Orleans, which is where Mackie lived, to see him. It was like a two-day, maybe a two-and-a-half-day thing. So I went down there to have him talk to me, listen to me, and then prescribe a program for me to gain weight. I had just finished my first full season in professional baseball, which is a very tiring season. And also, no matter who you are, unless you're you're gaining weight because of bad reasons, you're going to lose weight. I probably ended that season at 180 pounds, which was only a couple pounds less than I got drafted at. But nonetheless, 180 pounds. And I had a goal of gaining weight. I don't recall for certain, but I think I wanted to get up to, say, 195. And so I went to see Mackie about that. And I used to keep track of everything at the time. I wrote down when I woke up, when I went to bed, what I ate, what my conditioning was, all of that. And so I meet Mackie the first day I get to New Orleans. He comes to the hotel room that I'm staying in, and he looks at all of this. And he looks up at me, and he says, if you don't stop this, you will condition yourself out of the game of baseball. And then he went on to say, tomorrow we're going to run a series of tests, and they're going to show you these things. And he was right. The next day they showed me those things. But one of them was, your body is in a catabolic state. It's constantly tearing down because you're not giving it time to recover. And if you don't stop over-conditioning, you're not going to be able to play this game. Now, it took me some years before I took that advice to heart. But I say this, looking back, had I never taken that advice to heart, I don't get to the big leagues. Now, again... You go to see a man that you don't know that has a, a reputation of putting weight on people and you want to add weight. I didn't know Mackie. I got to know Mackie very well after our first meeting, but I didn't know him in our first meeting. And so I said to Mackie when he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to gain 15 pounds. And I said, but I am not going to use steroids. Now, again, after I got to know Mackie, I, I realized I didn't need to say that to the man but I did. And that ties in to the good news that I read last week as it regards the lockout. So as I think everybody listening to me knows, the collective bargaining agreement expired on December 1st, 2021. And of course, at same time, the owners instituted the lockout. But also expiring on December 1st, 2021, was the joint drug agreement. Now, if the, if the owners hadn't locked out the players, even though the CBA expired, and so did the JDA, they would have functioned as they were from 2016 to 2021. But because of the lockout, there is no drug testing going on right now. For the first time in 20 years, 40-man roster players are not being tested for drugs. The first thing everybody thinks about 
are PEDs, and no doubt that's a part of it, but also recreational drugs. Now, that was actually the situation of things when I played. If you were a 40-man roster player back in the 90s, you did not have to submit to mandatory drug testing unless you had a previous issue that was proven. And that's the way I believe it should be today. I believe that you shouldn't be mandated to do drug testing to prove that you're not using performance-enhancing drugs or even recreational drugs. That you should be required to submit to a drug test only upon probable cause. Only on the basis of the testimony of two or three witnesses making that testimony under oath. Only if you have a criminal conviction, an arrest and conviction by the police. Now, I'm guessing I'm not alone in that view, but I'm also guessing I'm in an extreme minority. I do hope that there are some of you listening that would agree with me, and I hope if you don't, that as we work through this episode, maybe you start to see things a little differently. But I do realize that it is not the view of most. Last week, I was listening to a conversation between Buster Olney and Tim Kirchin on the Baseball Tonight podcast, and it is very obvious they would not agree with me. One of the results of that is is that there's no steroid testing going on right now. Um, and, and I read uh, in the fall, I can't remember who wrote it, but somebody wrote a piece essentially saying that the player's perspective was, okay, once the labor deal's over, no more steroid testing. You know what? We don't, we don't need to do the steroid testing. And my initial thought was, would, did anybody learn anything from what happened in the 1990s? PED testing is something everybody should want. <laughs> except the guys who are cheating. To that, I would say, no. PED testing isn't something everybody should want. I would also say, no, it's not, or at least it shouldn't be, just those who are cheating that would like to see this testing permanently end. I surely hope that there are people on 40-man baseball rosters that do not cheat that would like to see this testing end. Now, I do agree that it's a good question to ask, and that is, didn't anybody learn the lesson from what happened in the 1990s? But I say that question should be asked more about what was done after we realized how bad the cheating was. In other words, how it was handled than the cheating itself. You know, and so to have this window of time, I have no doubt, Tim, that there are a bunch of players right now probably taking advantage of this time. Well, let's hope that they're not, Buster, but you're right. We have to learn from what happened, you know, 30 years ago because it opened the gates to something. And then all the players are so adamant about, you know, we can't have cheaters in our game. We have to have a, a playing field that is, you know, the right way. And and without steroid testing, it could open up a lot of bad situations. So let's hope we get that settled and get this thing going. I completely agree that it ought to be our goal, I better say Major League Baseball's goal, the player's goal, to eliminate cheating, to do many, many things to eliminate cheating, to punish those who are cheaters, to get cheating out of the game. Last week, I heard Doug Glanville talk about the fact that that the PED use, and he played, I think he began his career right when I was ending mine, and he played into the 2000s, so he saw it much more than I did. He said it it created a culture of cheating and it encouraged guys, pressured guys who otherwise wouldn't cheat to do so, not so they could break records and get into the Hall of Fame, but so they could get out of double A. 
And I agree with him that that culture of cheating was bad for the game generally or overall and for the players. No disagreement whatsoever. And we need to do what we can do to get the culture of cheating out of the game, to get cheaters out of the game. I just do not believe that one of the answers is mandatory drug testing. Again, that one of the answers is you are guilty until you are proven innocent because you do not fail a drug test. And I agree, as it was just mentioned, that not having drug testing can indeed open up a lot of bad situations. But I also believe that there are worse things that can come from having mandatory drug testing. Yeah, I can tell you this, is that in that 60-game season that we had, the, the pandemic season in 2020, uh, because there were obviously other priorities, you know, trying to get everybody through COVID testing and COVID protocol and getting people with that, there was a window of time, and I can't remember that, I think, was it six weeks or two months, in which there was no PED testing, and there was a lot of belief in the sport that there were players taking advantage of that. There were a handful of guys saying, you know what? They're not testing. I'm going to get juiced up. Uh, And that's why I wish that the two sides had been able to collaborate, cooperate enough where they could say, okay, we, we don't have a labor agreement, but let's figure out something where we can continue the steroid testing because that protects the clean players. That protects the interests of the clean players. That was one of the big lessons coming out of the 90s. So does it protect the interests of the clean players? Does it protect the clean players? I would say yes, with with a caveat. Yes, in small ways it does. It does make it less likely that there will be those who cheat with PEDs. But from my perspective, it makes all players, those who are cheaters and those who are clean, much more vulnerable to far worse things than what the testing or the lack of testing would do. Right. And again, that's what we, we've heard is so many clean players stepping forward and, you know, tearing into their own brethren who did this. And now there's a chance to keep everyone cleaner, certainly. And we're not taking advantage of that. No doubt. Clean players are up, very upset. Again, Doug Glanville talks about it very articulate, articulately and does a good job expressing how upset he was in what was going on around him as as he was a clean player. I I get all of that. I also know that players have said, hey, listen, we can police ourselves. And they can. They have that ability. However, what we have to recognize is what happened in the 1990s and got worse from all accounts in the 2000s, what brought about mandatory drug testing was at least in part because very few people in the game, players, staff, uh, Major League Baseball as an industry, uh, Bud Selig, who was the commissioner at the time, they didn't want to deal with it in the 1990s. They didn't want to take care of it themselves. And I get it. It's hard. It's the hard way. Just think about Mike Fires. It's the hard way. I get that. But they chose, instead of doing the hard thing, to willingly give up freedom and privacy for the easy way of, supposedly at least, catching the bad guys. And it is the easy way. I don't believe it's the right way, and I also believe it's very dangerous, a very dangerous way. I don't believe you ought to give up freedom and privacy and liberty for the sake of catching the bad guys. Now, I firmly believe this isn't in line even with the thought process of the founding fathers of our country. Think about the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects 
against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Now, I get it. The Fourth Amendment has to do with the government doing something. That's different, distinct from a collectively bargained agreement on something. However, it is not so distinct and separate that there's not an overlap. And even if I'm incorrect about the view of our founding fathers, not only with the civil government, but what they would see in the game of Major League Baseball, it's definitely, this process is definitely not in line with the will of our Heavenly Father. Now, to help me make this point, I'm going to phone a friend. I'm actually not going to call him right now, but I'm going to play two audio clips from Toby Sumter, Pastor Sumter. Sometime in the last week or two, he released a catechism. It's really good. If you haven't listened to it, you need to. It's 50 questions and answers on the government. And in question and answer 38, Toby discusses the difference between preventative justice and punitive justice. 38. What is the difference between preventative and punitive justice? Preventative justice is the attempt by humanists to prevent crimes by limiting liberty through endless regulations, fines, and inspections, whereas biblical punitive justice leaves men free and only punishes where actual crimes have occurred. So there it is. Preventative is humanistic. And the goal is we're going to stop crimes, or to apply it to baseball, we're going to stop cheaters by limiting excuse me, liberty through endless regulations, fines, and inspections, and remove inspections and insert in there drug testing. And then contrast that between punitive justice, which is biblical justice, which is based on God's revealed will and ways. That leaves men free. But it punishes crimes, in this case, again in baseball, cheaters that have occurred. And really, in any sphere of life, that's our, those are our options. Are we going to take the humanistic approach or the biblical approach? Now, a couple of questions and answers earlier, question and answer 36, Toby was talking about how it is that we determine whether laws are binding or not. 36. Are the civil laws of ancient Israel binding on all civil governments for all time? No. The specific laws of ancient Israel have expired with that nation state. However, those laws were based on the general equity of moral justice based on the eternal character of God. Since that eternal character cannot change, those common law principles are still binding on all nations for all time. So we have to have laws, if they're going to be binding, that are based upon these common law principles, and Toby is saying those are binding on all nations for all time, and they are based on the eternal, unchanging character of God. I realize Toby is talking about the civil government, but it is applicable to all forms of government. Whatever laws a household has, whatever laws a church has, whatever laws the civil government has, must be based on the eternal and unchanging character of God. And he reveals that to us in the scriptures. Now we have to ask ourselves the question, 
where do we put Major League Baseball in all of this? They're not a home. They're not a church. They're not a civil government. That is true. They still have governing authority, however, and I think they fit much more in the civil sphere than the other two. Matter of fact, I don't think they fit at all in home or church. And just consider this. Last week, it was announced that Trevor Bauer is not going to have charges pressed against him by the civil government in L.A. or L.A. County. Yet, Major League Baseball is continuing an investigation into his activity and has the right to levy fines, punishment, suspension, and the like. So they are functioning like a civil governing authority. And also consider this, that Major League Baseball didn't get to where it has been with the joint drug agreement only because of what happened in clubhouses and on the field in the 1990s and beyond, but because of a congressional hearing that took place in 2005 that took place before the House Committee on Government Reform. Back in March of 2005, there was an 11-hour hearing, and present were 10 Major League Baseball players, among them Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Rafael Palmero. Jose Canseco, and Kurt Schilling. Schilling was the one who was very outspoken against PED use. Also there, Bud Selig, the commissioner of baseball at the time. Don Fear, the head, the executive director of the Major League Baseball Players Association at that time. As well as Major League Baseball's labor negotiator, current commissioner, Rob Manfred. And these hearings were held so that our elected officials could put pressure on and threaten Major League Baseball as an industry to toughen up, to toughen up its policy on steroid use in the game. And it was basically a, you all take care of this or else. We will step in and we will take care of it ourselves. Now, when this hearing, this one-day, 11-hour hearing took place, many people watched it with great interest. And sadly, from my perspective, with great glee, as the House Committee dropped the hammer on Major League Baseball as an industry, and especially on those rich, famous, and greedy players. But I wasn't one of the ones watching it with glee. At that time, I did a number of radio interviews on a pretty regular basis on a Christian program. And I was asked a question which had the assumption that I was happy about this. And I said, no, I'm not happy about this at all. And you could tell that the one interviewing me was kind of like, what do you mean? And I said, well, listen, right now I'm a pastor of a church. And I just read that somewhere in the neighborhood of 35% of pastors have an issue with internet pornography. So there's an issue among pastors. I'm a pastor. I don't want people arbitrarily showing up at my house and looking at my computer. And somebody might say, oh, yeah, you wouldn't do that if you had nothing to hide. Well, just like I didn't use steroids, pornography was not and is not an issue for me. I didn't have anything to hide. If they checked my computer, there would be nothing there. That's not the point. Right now, I live in Appalachia. There is a significant issue that is very common in this area. But I don't want people arbitrarily showing up to my house without reasonable cause, without a search warrant that's that's given for the right reasons, and checking my house to see if I happen to be guilty of that. And again, I have nothing to hide in any way. And remember, the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution was not put there to protect the guilty, but the innocent. 
And as we look at things from God's way, his means of justice, we should see why that is so. Now, I remember in one of those interviews back in 2005, saying that if if we were watching what the government was doing with Major League Baseball, and then we were cheering on the government for the threats to intervene, that we needed to realize something, that such tyrannical tactics wouldn't end with rich baseball players. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.